And I am reading from Jonah. Pastor Sam will be preaching from the third chapter of Jonah, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, otherwise you can follow the screen. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. Thank you, Dee. Thank you. Thanks so much. I would buy an audio book of Dee reading the Bible to me. Thank you, sister. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, my family, so happy to be here. It's been a month for my family with COVID and everything like that. So it's good to be together with you. It's also good to have a mic like this. This is the first time we've ever had one. It's a big deal for us. So you thought I was pretty wild before. I, I'm going to like go up and down. I'll be walking around you, circling you. So just kidding. Well, I want to start off as we're diving into Jonah chapter 3. We are, in many ways, rescuing Jonah from the fairy tale kind of childhood warped view that many of us have. You know, if you even look at most books about Jonah for kids, most story books for Jonah, it leaves out all of Jonah chapter 4. And so with many of us, we have a very skewed picture of what God is actually doing in Jonah, very domesticated, tamed view of Jonah, and it's take, taken away all of its bite, all of its power, and therefore it's inoculated the power of Jonah for you and me every day. And so as we enter into Jonah chapter 3, I want to start off with a very simple but profound question. Are there any limits to God's mercy? Are there any things that God could, is there anything we could do that God would say, you know what, that's a little too far from my mercy. I remember being in my early 20s and being in the throes of pornography addiction, and I could not shake it. 
going right back into the same cycles that I swore I would never fall back into. Have you ever been in that situation where you swear with all your heart to God, I will never do that again. You experience the, the ash of sin, the death of sin, the, the brokenness of sin and its deadly consequences in your life. And you say, I, I get it now. I'll never fall back again into that stupid, foolish, wicked sin. And then you find yourself eating mud again like a pig going back to its vomit, dog going back to its vomit, and you find yourself in your shame, and you feel numbness, and maybe even a paralysis because you are so disillusioned that you could fall right back into the very thing you swore you would never fall back into. You know what that's like? Maybe it's not pornography. Maybe it's another kind of addiction a toxic relationship, maybe it's greed, maybe it's pride, maybe it's something, but all of us here, if we're real about ourselves, know the intense shame and brokenness of the depths of our hearts, if you're real and honest about it, and if you really dealt with that in your heart, you're going to ask yourself, is there any way that I've gone too far for God to forgive me? And I remember wrestling through that a lot in my younger days after I became a believer, I, I could not believe that God would extend mercy again. I get maybe God will extend mercy for the fifth time, 10th time, but not after that. I mean, there's only so many limits. So this morning, we're going to go in to explore some of the limits of God's mercy and see what happens when his word, his message comes upon one of the most historically wicked people in all of history and see what God does. Let me remind you where we're at for those who have been with us or those of you who are visiting for the first time. Jonah has received a command from God to go and call out against the wickedness of Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, the capital of the great empire Assyria. Jonah has, wants nothing to do with extending any kind of mercy towards his enemies. Remember, Assyria was a terrorist state. They were a great evil and a wicked enemy of Israel. And so Jonah runs away from the presence of God, disobeys God. And after a series of miraculous sovereign events, Jonah finds himself digested by a giant fish. And in that dire, dark, damp, disgusting, humid, smelly place, he awakens up to reality. He realizes that God's ways are truly better than his ways and he wakens up, he humbles himself and then the very end of chapter two ends with Jonah being vomited onto the land by this fish. And so now Jonah is humbled and resolved to obey the Lord. So that's the kind of context we're walking into. Remember, Jonah's bringing a message of judgment upon Nineveh. And remember I said in the first sermon, judgments, mercy, sorry, warnings are mercies. Warnings are mercies from God because he could leave us in our state and not even warn us. So let's look at Jonah chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah gets a second chance. And aren't you glad that God is not just the God of second chances, but hundredth chances, I, I, I say that, and I'm afraid I say that, and we can be calloused as we hear that because we take that for granted. But isn't it good news? It, isn't it very logically consistent that God could be a God that only gives us one chance? Wouldn't that make sense? It could. 
And yet we have a God, the God of our Bible, the God of all creation, who actually is merciful and patient and gives us many chances, even this hardened prophet. I mean, think about this. Jonah wasn't given some vague sense. God spoke to him audibly, and Jonah hardened his heart and turned away from him. That's the kind of hardness and rebellion we're talking about, and yet God is patient and gives him many chances. Remember this language. He says, call out against the city. It's a repeat of chapter one on the screen, Jonah 1, 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And great is, is speaking both of the magnitude of the size of it for the near ancient east, uh, but also the greatness and the prominence of this city, the capital of the great mega power of the world. And call out against it. Why? For their evil has come up before me. So I know anytime we talk about judgment in the Bible, some of us can cringe and think, oh, no, 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 give me a New Testament passage about God's love because judgment sounds too archaic, too, too primitive, too angry. I don't want a God that has anger or judgments. But I just want to remind you, what does the text say? Why is he calling against them? For because their evil has come up before me. A God that is just merely love but does not cast any judgments is not a God of love. Remember, no evil goes unnoticed and undealt with by God. All the evil for, from the, that came forth from Nineveh, came forth from the Assyrians, God noted it all. None of it went past him. None of it went unnoticed. And so judgment is now finally being called out against this city. So verse three, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And we've actually seen this. Archaeologists have uncovered the remnants of the city or some of the city, and they see the, the greatness of the city for that time. Verse four, Jonah begins to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he calls out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So my sense is that Jonah is going throughout the whole city, different parts of the city, that's my sense of it, and proclaims a simple message, 40 days and you will be overthrown. Some scholars take this as prophetic sabotage. He wants them to be overthrown, so he gives them no information. He just merely says, hey, 40 days, you will be destroyed. Not why they'll be destroyed, not who they need to repent to or apologize to, what they need to do, who this God is. He's just saying, you're screwed in 40 days. Thank you. I'll be here till Thursday. You know, like just, that's it. But I tend to believe that this is more of a summary because it says that he did, he told them what the Lord had told him. And you're going to actually see something that's a little clearer in verse 10. But the word here, overthrown, is the same word that the book of Genesis uses when speaking about Sodom and Gomorrah, which were destroyed by fire. So we're talking about great judgment and catastrophe upon the city. So I, I do think that this message, 40 days in the, and you will be overthrown, I think it's a summary about what he said. I don't think he just said those words for days or for a whole day walking through the city, but that's my interpretation. The text actually leaves it a little ambiguous. So how will this city, this wicked, historically wicked city, so hardened, known for a history of genocide and some of the most terrible acts you could ever imagine, how will they respond to this message of judgment? Verse five. 
And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. What? (laughs) If you are not a careful reader or you're just glazed over because that's what you're used to do and conditioned at church, that may have just gone over your head. Do you see how ridiculous this is? This wicked people have this most unlikely revival from maybe one of the shortest messages of all time. They stop eating and drinking. They do a complete fast. They put on sackcloth, which was made out of goat's hair, extremely itchy, extremely humbling and uncomfortable, symbolizing something that's going on the inside. They're trying to do something on the outside to show what's going on here. They're symbolizing their mourning, their humility, their contrition. This is not the case for just a few people, but everyone from the greatest to the least. Imagine a modern day example. Think of with me about a terrorist state like North Korea. Imagine North Korea, a place where you cannot preach the gospel, a place where there's absolute dictatorial power, where the entire state lives to serve one family, essentially. They can do whatever they want. They have absolute authority and they will torture you, they will kill you, they will do unspeakable evils. The kind of tragedies that come out of North Korea are hard to even imagine. Now imagine, by God's grace, a missionary sneaks in and he walks through the streets of, of North Korea, Pyongyang, just saying, 40 days and your whole city will be overthrown. And imagine, Kim Jong-un and the rest of the Communist Party humble themselves, take off their garments of power and humble themselves and repent to God for their wickedness. Can you imagine such a thing? That would be likened to what we are seeing right here with Nineveh. That can happen today. Amen? Amen is let it be. Not That's good, right? Let's, let that happen, Lord. But as we see this process of Nineveh's repentance, it actually gives us a lot of good information for ourselves to internalize of what does good, true, biblical repentance looks like. A very Christian word that if you grew up in the church, you may be inoculated to. What what does that word repentance look like? We actually can see a good process here. Note the phrase that started off in this verse. The people did what with God? They believed God. Can you put that verse back up there. The people believed God. And after they believed, all this action came forth. True biblical belief is always followed by action. We have in our world, in our churches, and in America especially, have been fallen into some sort of deception, some delusion that when it comes to things of faith, you can have belief and not have action tethered to it. In no other area of our life would we say that that could be consistent. No, no husband would say, I love my wife, she's number one in my life, and yet we would give him a pass for cheating on her all the time. We would say, you don't actually believe those words. You don't actually believe she's number one in your life, in your affections, right? We wouldn't give them a pass there, just like you wouldn't give a, someone who says that they are the number one fan of the Timberwolves and yet don't know anything going on or never goes to any of their games, right? 
And yet we all instinctively understand that true belief followed by action. And yet for us in the church, we often believe that you can believe something sincerely and it show no effect in your daily life. We say things like, the Bible is God's word. It's God's word, yeah. Yet you never read it unless you have to. We may say stuff like, the good life is to be generous, and yet we spend all our money on ourselves. Or we'll say stuff like, I believe in a literal heaven and hell, and yet our whole life is just lived to make our life comfortable in this present age. Well, we'll say stuff like, the gospel is the greatest answer to all the greatest needs of society, and yet we never share the gospel with anyone. And we look to politics and other different means in our world to bring all the solutions. See, if you feel called out, I'm calling myself out because we're all prone to this. We're all prone to have belief statements that we sincerely say and declare that we believe, and yet we believe that we get a pass, that our actions don't have to follow it. But when you see the Bible over and over again, you look through the pages of scripture, you never see belief and actions divorced. And so the first step of repentance that we see from the Ninevites is not action, but belief. They truly believe God's word. They receive it. They realize they're wrong. They realize they're in trouble. And because they truly believe that, they do something. Just like if you truly believe this building was on fire, if you truly believe that, you would leave. And so they believe these words. They believe that judgment is due for them. And therefore, they take radical steps. Now, I want to take a pause real quick before we get into more of these steps about repentance. And I want to encourage you with anyone here who struggles with sharing the gospel. Anyone here who struggles sharing their faith with their coworkers or friends or family or anybody difficult in their life. Because if there's ever a situation where you can say it was not the eloquence of the person or how pure the person was, it would be the situation that brought forth any fruit. I mean, when you think about Jonah, he was one of the most disqualified preachers ever based off of his character and his track record. We don't see a situation where Jonah was just this outstanding, holy, godly man who just loved the Lord and therefore God blessed it. We see a man who's the opposite, who consistently shows hypocrisy and yet God uses him mightily. And so this is good news for us who share, struggle sharing the gospel. We say stuff like, I'm not a very eloquent or good speaker, or I don't know enough of the Bible or theology or apologetics, or I'm not godly enough yet, Sam. Listen, knowing stuff, being godly, being able to speak clearly, those are good things that we all should grow in. But listen, God's word is not dependent on those realities in your life. That's really important for you to hear. Remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how chapter two sums up. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not you. Remember, we're not trying to help pretty much good people become better people. We're trying to help dead people become alive in, in Jesus. And so that's not something you can do because you are eloquent enough. When I was recently at Hume, New England, I was able to walk through a cemetery, which is right near the campsite, in the campsite. And the, some of the tombstones were 200 years old. I mean, there was this ancient cemetery. You couldn't even read a lot of the words because they were so decrepit and broken down by time. 
And I was sitting there imagining, I'm about to preach to all these high schoolers and I'm trying to think, listen, it's the same thing. I can't make the dead rise. I'm sitting in front of all these dead tombs where there's nothing left in them but like, you know, whatever it decomposes to. I could not, without, with all my effort, no matter how hard I scream, no matter how eloquent my illustrations are, wake up all those dead people in that cemetery. And that's the same reality for every single child that we raise parents, every friend or family member that we know, coworker that does not know Jesus. They are dead in their sins, they're lost in their trespasses, and they need a miracle for their hearts to awaken. And yet, look at Jonah's life, look at Jonah's message. God uses him to bring life to a very wicked people. Don't underestimate. Did you know that God can use you to bring mercy and life to your whole family, to your whole neighborhood, to your whole campus, to your whole home, your workplace? God can use you. He is not limited by you. Are there any Ninevehs in your life, quote-unquote Ninevehs in your life, people in your life that don't know the Lord and you think that it's up to you to be able to change them? Are there any Ninevehs in your life that God is calling you to open your mouth and testify of his mercy and of his grace and his power and his authority and his supremacy that you're holding back to because you're afraid that you're not eloquent enough or smart enough or whatever it is? You're too introverted If you believe those lies, then you still think it's up to you. But it's the Lord that does the changing. Just like as I preach to you every Sunday that I preach, before I come up, I say, come on, let's go, Holy Spirit. Because I know that unless the Holy Spirit moves, no matter how eloquent I am or how well prepped I am, nothing happens here. I feel that right now. I'm looking at your eyes. I know that I can't do anything. I know that. Do you know that? Do you know that in your parenting? Do you know that in your relating with people, unbelievers, that you can't do anything apart from the Holy Spirit? Do you have that kind of dependency, that kind of desperation for God to move? Because if you don't, then you're going to be doing it on your own strength. And either that you're going to do it with pride or you're not going to do it at all because you don't think you can do anything because you can't do anything. All right, that's enough of that. Let me go back to this whole process of repentance Well, let's look at the king's responsiveness and how he responds. Remember, the king is the highest authority of the land. He single-handedly has decided the genocide of many people, the rape and pillage of many people. He's an evil dictator. How will he respond to this message of judgment upon him? Verse 6. So we're back to the text. Jonah 3, 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne removed his robe, his royal robe, his symbol of authority and power and prestige, covered himself. Instead of having the robe, he replaced it with sackcloth. Remember, itchy, disgusting, burlap, burlap like potato, russet potato sack. And he sits in ashes. This is extreme. This is incredible. Even the greatest king on the earth, the most power at that time, who's an unspeakable act 
genocide. He humbles himself because the word of God pierces his heart. He recognizes his evil. He recognizes his culpability and he humbles himself, sitting over ashes, mourning over his sin. So I wanna challenge you, church, do not stop praying for Putin. Do not stop praying for Biden or Trump or you name the earthly authority that you feel like can never change. God, if God can change the king of Assyria, he can change those guys. Keep praying for crazy, life-transforming conversions from these so-called kings and rulers. So the king then leads his whole nation into repentance. Verse 7. The king issues a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They are so earnest and sincere about their repentance that they call a total fast. No food, no drink, no water. They're even making the cows repent. (laughs) They're clothing the cows. Old Betsy is clothed in sackcloth as well. And they're making Betsy not drink water or eat. (laughs) Some take this as that Jonah is using extreme language to see how serious they are, or, or in contrast to the hardness of Jonah and Israel. Now look at these wicked people, historically wicked people. Look at how humble they are, and yet if you see the history of God's people can be so proud, so slow to repent. It brings judgment upon Jonah, who is supposed to be a righteous prophet. So I think it could be satire. It's, I think, ambiguous. But I also think it's a reasonable response from the king and the people because they actually, what did this text say about God's word? They believe God's word. Because if you actually believe in God's word, these are the reasonable reactions to God's word. They know that the whole city will be overthrown in 40 days. And so this is the natural, logical progression in believing those words. And I also think they don't know much about God's character. They don't know Yahweh's character. And if you've ever done any mission trips or if you know about how God works in different people groups, usually when you first introduce God's word, there is a lot of Areas about the character of God that they're confused about, that they project upon from their own culture. And so it is also possible that the king knows nothing about God and his character, and therefore they're just throwing everything in the kitchen sink at it. Let's just do whatever. Let's cover all our bases. I don't know if the cows need to repent, but let's make them repent too. I can see that happening logically. See, one of the true signs of biblical repentance of godly sorrow, as the apostle Paul talks about, is that you go over the top. You just go over the top, trying to do whatever you can to flee away from that sin that brought you so much death. And sometimes it takes wise counselors to be like, whoa, whoa, like, you don't need to do that too, you know? They got their knife out. They're about to cut their hand off. You know, they're, whoa, whoa, you don't need to do that, right? Like, it's people like that that give me great hope that they're actually going to have long-term transformation. 
On the other hand, I've walked with numerous people over the years and, and they start crying because they're feeling guilty over the sin. They repent. And as I try to walk them through a process of repentance, they're always trying to just do the bare minimum. You know, they're just like, you know, I can still hold on to those numbers. You know, no, I don't need to change anything with my device usage. I don't need to change anything here. I don't need to quit that job or I don't need to leave that toxic relationship. I can make it work, right? right? It's, a, it's the people who are trying to find a way to try to be friends with the world and their sin are the people that almost inevitably always fall back into their sin. And then the people that I walk with who are just over the top extreme and just insane and I have to talk off the ledge because they're going too much. Those are the people that the, the spirit of God is working in them. And, and so therefore they're just so zealous to do whatever they can to make right with God. Just like whenever someone, a spouse cheats on the other and they try to make things right, the ones that make it long-term are the ones who are saying, husband or wife, I will do whatever it takes. I will go to that treatment center. I'll get rid of that. I'll do whatever. And the ones that, that don't are, are like, hey, I've already felt enough shame. Don't, don't put any requirements on me. I already feel bad enough. They, they nitpick and they try to do the bare minimum. And, and I know this is kind of a dig digression, but I hope... You hear this because this is important. As you disciple people and as you are discipled in Jesus, you want to check your heart as what is your reaction when you are pinged and cut by the word of God and you start a process of repentance. Are you nitpicking, trying to do the bare minimum to get right with God? Or is your heart saying, God, I'll just do whatever because I love you and I want to make things right. Let's talk about repentance more. Let's review what we've seen. Verse five and eight, break down this this beautiful picture of repentance. First is belief. You truly believe. In, in the Greek, the word repentance is metanoeo, okay? So noet, your, your, your thinking is changing. Metamorphosis is kind of where that word comes from, meta. It's after changing. So your, your mind is changing about something. So repentance is not merely saying, sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that. Repentance is my mind is different about that now. I now find that as repulsive or I'm starting to grow in seeing that as repulsive. My thinking is changing and I see that I'm wrong and you're right, God, and I wanna realign my ethics and my values with your mind, God. I wanna seize my desire to, to, to control the knowledge of good and evil like my parents, Adam and Eve. I wanna give that to you. You define good and evil and I give that to you. I'm changing my thinking. So once you see rightly first, then the response in the next verse is call out mightily to God. You call out to God for mercy. And then what do you do? You humble yourself. And the text says, let everyone turn from his evil ways. This word turn is the word shuv in Hebrew. Can you say shuv? Shuv. Shuv is this idea of walking one direction and you're turning. And so again, remember, belief and actions are never divorced in the Bible. So if you actually turn away from your sin, wow, I'm away from this mic and I can talk. This is amazing. I got to get used to it. If, if it's like a Pavlov's dog or whatever. I feel like I have to stay here, but now I can start walking around, right? So we, we have this idea in Hebrew that true repentance is you're just like Jonah in chapter one. Remember, he's fleeing from the face of Yahweh. Repentance is turning towards the face of Yahweh and turning towards God and his ways. Repentance is not merely saying, I'm sorry, or saying, saying, please forgive me, God. That is included into it, but it's fundamentally follows with a reorientation of your life and your hearts. 
And notice, they get very specific about the repentance. Can you put up on the screen verse, uh, let's see, verse 8, 7 and 8. <clears throat> Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the, what's that word? Violence. See, when you repent, you get specific, not like, oh, I'm sorry, I did something wrong, right? We're constantly trying to disciple our kids to understand that. They'll say, sorry, I was rude. Okay, how were you rude? What did you do to your sister, right? Oh, you punched her. Okay, that, that is how you are rude, right? And oftentimes, one of the ways we protect our own pride when we repent is that we use vague words. Oh, I, I kind of messed up. Sorry, but they're specific. And it's interesting because I've talked to you, alluded to you about the insanity of the evil of Assyria. And what is interesting is that sin never can be compartmentalized into one area. See, because not only was Nineveh in Assyria a very brutal people to other people that they conquered, they were brutal to themselves. They were wicked to themselves. They fought with each other. They were violent with each other. And so part of them changing is them giving up their violence. Let me tell you something, though. A question that you could think of and you ought to think of is, how long did this last? How long did Nineveh stay right with God? Because if you know history, you know that they, 100 years later, they were destroyed that God prophesied that they would be judged and a hundred years later, they actually are destroyed for their wickedness. But for that one generation, it seems like there was a period of peace and purity and, and forsaking of their evil ways. God had mercy on them because they were repentant. So what does that teach us today? You know what that teaches us? Is that we never stop repenting. We never stop shooving towards God right? Why? Because every day you wake up, you know who, do you, who, who you discover back on the throne of your heart? You. You wake up, you're like, oh, I want to be king again, right? And so it's not a merely a thing that your parents can decide for you as kids, or you did at church camp when in 98, where you one time repented. No, no, no. The Christian life is a lifestyle of repenting. Every day when you wake up and you rise, you realize that you're back on the throne. You say, Jesus, I give you my throne. And so I love saying this. I know you've heard me say this before, maybe. When was the last time you gave yourself to the Lord? When was the last time you surrendered your life to Jesus? The answer shouldn't be a long time ago. It should be this morning. Daily, God, I repent. I turn, I shove from my, my throne, my control, and I turn to you. I metanoeo. I change my thinking that I am wise. I'm the one who can control. I'm the one who knows the answers to life and happiness and joy and purpose. I turn to you and let you have that. So the Ninevites for a season had peace with God, but over time they started to turn back to their own evil ways and their own control. Now let's go back to the text. The king ends with this statement, verse 9, Jonah 3, 9. Would you read this out loud? Who knows? This king attributes fierce anger towards God, to God. Is that right? Yes, it's right. God is 
in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And one of the things that we know throughout scripture is that he is angry towards wickedness. He is not apathetic. He's not passive. He has fierce anger towards evil and wickedness. That is right. God should be angry if he has a caring, loving bone in his body, if he did have a body. But notice the king's posture. Because he doesn't know the character of Yahweh, he does not expect forgiveness. He does not demand it or, or anything. He doesn't presume upon God's forgiveness. He, he, he asks, who knows? Maybe God will have mercy on us. See, for mercy to be truly mercy, it cannot be demanded. It cannot be expected. That's called justice. Getting what you deserve is called justice. And you know what justice would be? All of Assyria burning up in flames. So the Assyrians don't want justice. Justice would mean all of them destroyed. They want mercy, and yet they don't know God personally. They don't know his character. So they're just guessing and so saying, maybe God will forgive us. Listen, God does not have to forgive anybody. I've heard some people say, isn't it God's job to forgive everyone? No, it's not. He doesn't have to. And yet we see good news about him in the Bible. Before we get into how God responds to their repentance or their so-called repentance, at least. Let me share with you a few details about the Assyrians, because I think this is important because there are certain sins that all of us have a greater sensitivity towards that when you hear someone do it, it's just harder for you to get over. Even if you love and celebrate the mercy of God, there are certain sins where you say, mm, I don't know about that one. So let me tell you a little bit about the Assyrians before we get into the last verse 10. The Assyrians, as I told you, were known as a terrorist state. They would brag about killing a captive enemy, but before they kill them, they would cut off their arm, and then while the person is bleeding out to death, they would mockingly hold that arm and shake it in front of them. They would make parades of people's heads. They would come and they would capture people, cut off their heads, find living relatives of that person, and have you hold that person, your loved one's head, and walk through the streets of Assyria, of Nineveh. Like, imagine that. Them murdering one of your children or one of your spouses, grabbing their head and say, you carry that person's head as a public spectacle of our triumph over your nation as you walk through our streets. I dare not talk about how they treated little girls. There is a historical document founded, found called the Lachish Relief. So if you're familiar with the Bibles, in 2 Kings, it talks about the Assyrians sieging the city of Lachish. I've been there before, the ruins of Lachish in Israel. And this document from Assyria corroborates with the account in 2 Kings. And in the picture, there's one scene where it shows that they are filleting alive Israelites, stretching them out with ropes and then slowly skinning them alive and then putting the skin across 
the city walls. They, they would have this practice of as they're destroying a city or they're trying to siege and get into the city, they would capture Israelites and then take giant stakes of wood all around the city and impale the people. And so as you go out and wake up in the morning, looking out your city, you see your family and your friends impaled all around you. This is the kind of people the Assyrians were. I could go further, but let me ask you this. What do you feel towards these people right now? If you actually internalize what I just said, how do you feel about them? Do you want them to have mercy? What about these kind of people? How does God feel towards these people? What will he do? This so-called just God who cares about love and cares about people and the impoverished and the broken. Look at verse 10. Let's see what God does. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. What? They didn't spend months and years earning forgiveness? How can it be that easy? Doesn't God know how evil they are? More than we know. God knows how evil they are way more than you and I could ever know. And yet, how can God be that merciful? Salvation belongs to Yahweh and he will extend mercy on whomever he pleases. But this creates a significant problem, does it not? How can a God of justice bring and extend mercy to a people with such a rap sheet that you could not even imagine? How would all the victims of these families who were massacred and raped and abused feel towards God for extending mercy upon their enemies? How do we reckon with this kind of mercy upon a people who are so unjust? How is this justice? How would you feel if you were a family member of them? Probably furious and offended, right? And that's what we see from Jonah in chapter four. Furious, upset. So how is God just to extend mercy to all these people who have sinned? And how is God just to extend mercy to you and me? Though we are not like the Assyrians, exactly like them, we have hearts in many ways like the Assyrians. How can God show justice and mercy towards us? Well, this is how. There was another king who was like the king of Assyria, but nothing like the king of Assyria. And this king too took off his robes, took off his power, took off his symbols of authority, humbled himself, came into our darkness, came into our mess, saw the brokenness of our world, the wickedness of our world, and instead of standing apart, he entered into it, took on flesh, and took the judgment that we all deserved. And so in ways he's like the king of Assyria, in ways he's completely not like the king of Assyria, because the king of Assyria must repent of his own sin. And this king Jesus, who comes down onto the earth, does not have to repent of any sin. He's never done anything wrong. He's always had a pure heart. And because of his voluntary sacrifice for you and me, Jesus is treated like he's the king of Assyria and he did all that he did so that the king of Assyria could be treated like he was Jesus. And that is the same gospel and the good news and the mercy that you and I get 
Let me show you Philippians 2, 6 through 8. We're running out of time, so let me fly through this. Though he was God, Jesus, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. He instead gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is our king, far better than the king of Assyria. But this creates still another problem. How can the Ninevites receive a sacrifice when Jesus died after they died? How does that work? Have you ever wondered, how do Old Testament people receive God's forgiveness without the cross? Well, let me show you a quick passage. I want to read this slowly with you without much comment for the sake of time. Romans 3, 24. Would you read this out loud with me? Oh, goodness. For those who can see it, will you read this out loud? Yet God, in his grace... He was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. If you never studied this passage, I highly recommend you to spend an afternoon looking at this passage. But what we see is that there's retroactive power in the cross that God can look back and see their hope and faith in the future Messiah and put their trust. And there's retroactive power in the blood of Christ uh, that goes back to even people like the Ninevites. I start off the sermon raising the question, how do we know God could forgive us even when we go back to that same sin we just repented of? How, are there any extent to God's mercy? Do we have to pray like the king of Assyria? Remember how he prayed in verse nine? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Do you have to pray like that? Do you have to pray like this? God, would you forgive me? I don't know if you will, but maybe. Do you have to pray like that? No. Okay, that, that was really pathetic. You, you, and this is why I'm preaching the sermon. You should have sounded, you say, no, Sam, I don't have to pray like that. You can have confidence right now that God will extend mercy to you if you repent. If you are not a Christian here, if you're not actively following Jesus as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, here's a promise for you from Romans chapter 10, verse nine. Would you read this out loud, loud with me? Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise that you can take to the bank that if you're not following God, Jesus right now, you don't feel like you have peace with God, there's a promise. You don't have to say, maybe God will forgive me. Maybe he'll save me. No, no, no. He promised he will if you confess Jesus is Lord and Savior. And if you want that, come talk to me. Come talk to a Christian here. We want to introduce what it looks like to have a relationship with him and follow Jesus. Now, for those who are believers and yet you are hounded by the shame and pain of sin 
And you question at times if God's mercy could be fresh for you, can still be there for you. Let me remind you, yes, it can. Even if you've blown it for the hundredth time, if you feel like there's no way that you could approach God again and say sorry again because you just did it again, you blew it again, or you did something that you never imagined you could do. Maybe you've never done it before, but you're like, there's no way God could forgive me of that sin. Let me remind you of 1 John 1, 9. Do you see, read this out loud with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why would God be just and faithful to forgive you? Because he already died for it. The pay, payment, the penalty has already been purchased for you and therefore stop holding on to that sin. It's already been paid for. It's like you going to a restaurant and someone surprising you and the waitress or the waiter comes to you and says, hey, it's already been paid for. You can go, you're, you, the bill's taken care of. And you're like, no, 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 let me pay for it longer with my penance. Let me pay for it longer with my shame and my corner of shame and my, my penalty box to feel better and feel good enough like God can forgive you. No, 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 it's already been paid for. Christian, if you're trusting Jesus, you can receive that forgiveness afresh. So whether it's the first time or the millionth time, let's go before the God of mercy. Let me end with this beautiful quote that hopefully encourages your soul. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regrets are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most, make, make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means one day, on that day, when we stand before him, quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy, rich heart we had. This is the God of mercy that we worship. Will you receive him afresh this morning, church? Will you receive his mercy and let him cleanse you afresh of your sins and just bask in his love? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying for us so that we can have mercy from you. Thank you that on the cross that you satisfy both justice, justice and love coming together. And I pray that if there's anyone here holding on to their sin and their shame, that they would call out mightily. They, they would believe the word call out mightily, humble themselves, turn from their sins, and you would see that and you would extend mercy to them. Whether that's for the Christian who's been struggling lately and holding back to the person who's never done that before for the first time, let, them all, let us all come before you and receive your mercy afresh because you love to give it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.